I just come up here filled up with uh, fresh encouragement from everything that's happened so far this morning. The songs pointing to the resurrection. Dan's example of personal hope in the midst of trials. And then seeing these faces of these guys over in Ethiopia, which was not that long ago. I was in those very rooms talking to those guys. I know their names now. Um, God's just doing such a work over there. So we just have so much to be thankful for. And uh, we're going to look today at another passage that just keeps pointing us to the hope that's underneath all of those things. Because today's Resurrection Sunday, and that is the foretaste of the future to come for all who are believers in Jesus, that there is a resurrection from the dead. And so that's embedded in one part of our text this morning. I'm asking you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, if you have a Bible with you. Our, our focus is going to be on verses 1 to 18, um, but we're only going to start by reading verses 11 to 14, which are kind of the center of the message, and that's the part that gets at the resurrection. Um, to give a little bit of context, we've been going through four chapters now about the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. It comes to an end here at the end of verse 18. And in this text, 1 through 18, we've got both a look back to Good Friday and then a celebration of Resurrection Sunday and also the ascension of Christ, which was 40 days after uh, his resurrection. So all that's embedded in here. But let's just read verses 11 to 14 to get the, the core of the message. And then I'm going to pray. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for the grace you've been pouring out on us this morning. We are not looking down at ourselves today. We are looking up to see you. That's where the hope is. It's with you and with your son, Jesus, whom you sent to give us life. And so we just ask by your spirit that you would again invade our hearts with fresh glimpse of the glory that there is, of the hope of life to come, of the hope of your presence now. We ask you to open up our eyes and our hearts to what you have in this text and encourage us. And if there's anyone, Lord, who's not sure about you this morning, not sure about this whole Christianity, we ask now that you give a fresh revelation and open their heart to you to see the beauty and glory of Christ. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've read that uh, the decisive battle in World War II, at least the war in Europe, was D-Day. Once the Allied forces landed on Normandy in uh, France on June 6, 1944, and they defeated the strength of the Nazi army, the tide turned completely in favor of the Allies. There was still more fighting that went on after that, but within a year of D-Day, the German high command surrendered and the war was over. 
D-Day was the decisive victory that won the war and secured the liberation of occupied Western Europe. Well, we can say the same thing about the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Our passage says of him that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's a picture of a once dead Jesus, now resurrected and ascended to the throne of God, the victor who accomplished the decisive victory that saves his people. And now all that's left is to see the final surrender of all of his enemies and the end of the conflict that's been going on between darkness and light since the beginning of this world. So to appreciate that victory, that resurrection, that ascension, that enthronement of Jesus, we have to put it in the context of the drama of salvation that is presented to us in verses 1 to 18. Because it's just one part of 18 verses, but we need all those verses to really give the full effect of what the resurrection and ascension really mean for us. The drama unfolds in four parts, and I'm going to summarize those under four words. Inability, efficacy, victory, and security. That's the drama of, of redemption, of salvation, in four parts, and we're going to explain those as we go here and make application to our lives. Let's start with the first part of the drama of salvation, inability. By inability, I'm referring to our inability to make things right between us and God by our own efforts. Our inability to not sin against God. We see that principle in verses 1 to 4. They read this way. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the setting here is the animal sacrifices of ancient Israel. They were done to, to atone for their sins, to make amends for their disobedience to God, His good and His perfect will. And so by doing these sacrifices, they could remain in good relations with the Lord. And particularly what the text has in mind is the yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest sacrificed a bull for his own sin. And then he sacrificed a goat as a sin offering for the people of Israel. And those same sacrifices were offered every year to atone for the sins of the people. And the fact that the sacrifice involves death, the death of a living creature, 
It indicates the sentence that our sins deserve, which is death. Because as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But as the text says, these sacrifices didn't really solve the problem of human sinfulness. It says the law can never, by these sacrifices, make perfect those who draw near. They didn't cleanse the people from sin and guilt. In fact, every time they made these sacrifices, it was a reminder of sins, it says. If you have to keep making sacrifices for sins over and over again, it's only because you keep on sinning over and over again. And so year by year, it was always necessary because the people never stopped disobeying God. So the writer summarizes this problem by saying, here's the, here's the real issue. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's the root issue. No animal sacrifice can ultimately deal with human guilt and end human sinfulness. People cannot not sin. <laughs> now, true, we can say no in the moment to a bad thing, but we can't say no to all bad things. We are going to sin, and if we're going to keep doing that, we're always going to have guilt, and there is always going to be a need for making things right between you and God. Now, if you doubt that, try an experiment. Um, I'm a scientist. I like experiments. <clears throat> List 10 things that you're tempted to do that you know are wrong. Right? You have your mental list of things you know are wrong. Now, let's, let's say you had 10 of them. And, and let's say that on your list it might include things like this. Angry outbursts, lack of love for others, gossip, preoccupation with money, fear, worry, porn, laziness, pride, unbelief. Whatever your list is, see what happens if you resolve that you will not do any of those things for the next week. You know, I'm hearing laughter. You know what's going to happen. You won't make it through the afternoon without doing one of those or all of those. We can't not sin. We will always have guilt. No amount of sacrifice can change that reality or address the root problem. And that's not just a lesson for ancient Israel. It's a principle that applies to us today. If we try to do anything to make it up to God after we become aware of how we've blown it, it is impossible for that action to take away your sins. Because as Paul said in Galatians 2.16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, even when you start to obey God after you've disobeyed, that still will not make you righteous in His sight because His standard is perfection. And no amount of law-keeping will make perfect those who draw near because our guilt is still there. For example, if you feel bad because you ignored someone who really needed your help, you might make yourself feel better by helping the next person. But it doesn't erase the guilt of what you already did. Today's obedience doesn't erase yesterday's disobedience. 
Likewise, a shoplifter is not innocent because he only steals one day a month, and the other 29 days he's honest. (laughs) Sacrifices, penance, doing better to obey God, those do not take away sins. What we need if we're to be saved, if we're to be in right relationship with God, is a perfect record. And a perfect record is something we can't get by ourselves no matter how much we try. So part one of the drama of salvation is man's inability to save himself from guilt and the penalty of death that our guilt deserves. That's the bad news, but the rest of the drama is all good news. (laughs) The other three parts overwhelm the badness of part one. Because those who look to Christ have a sacrifice that does make perfect those who draw near. So let's look at part two, which we call efficacy. That means the ability to produce a desired or intended result. Jesus has the ability to produce the intended result, to bring you to God and make you perfect in His sight. So let's see how he does it. It's the teaching of verses 5 to 10. Let's read that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, this is amazing good news. We have to follow the logic of it. It starts with a quote from Psalm 40, put into the words of Jesus. So, the writer saying, Psalm 40 was written a long, long time ago. When Jesus came on the scene, it's, this is what he did. It was what he was about. So, let's put the words in his mouth because this is what his life meant. And he says in those verses, which are from 5 to 7, a body you have prepared for me. That refers to the incarnation. That is the Word made flesh who dwelt among us from John 1. That is Jesus, the Son of God, who came into this world with a human body prepared for him to do a particular thing. Namely, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, what was God's will for Jesus? What is written of him in the scroll of the book, the Old Testament scriptures, that he should do? Well, it wasn't just to become another priest offering sacrifices day after day and year after year according to the law. Sacrifices which cannot take away sins. No. Verse 10 tells us, by that will, by God's will, 
We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God's will, His purpose, His special assignment for His Son was to sanctify a people. Sanctify means to set apart for God, to make holy, to cleanse from sin. In a word, to save people from their sins and to save them from the penalty of those sins and one day the very presence of sin and bring those people to himself. That was his mission. That was his purpose. That was God's will that he said, behold, I have come to do that. And the text says God accomplished it through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all to take away sins. That is the one that makes perfect those who draw near. Jesus, being a sinless human, He dies in the place of sinful humans. He takes on Himself the penalty we deserve. And in exchange, He gives us His perfect record of righteousness. And He, not not being just human, but also the infinite God in human flesh, He is able to endure the full penalty of the sins of everyone who would be saved by that death. That's the purpose that was written about Jesus in the scroll of the book. It was all building up to the cross, that sacrifice of a body, a real human body in the place of real human sin, but effective enough that it could cover all sins. Now, you might ask, where is that written? (laughs) Where is that written in the scroll of the book? Well, like a great mystery being solved one clue at a time, the death of Christ for our sins was revealed as God's purpose by degrees throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples. In the Garden of Eden, Jesus is the offspring who shall bruise the serpent's head. That's a reference to the devil. But in the process, he would suffer a bruising of his heel by that same serpent. A non-threatening bruise. not, not, Not one that was like the crushing blow of the serpent. But it would be a bruise. That's the beginning of the evidence of what was written in the book about what Jesus would do. On Mount Moriah, Jesus is the lamb that God will provide for himself as an offering instead of Isaac. In Isaiah, Jesus is the suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. You see, the cross was always the purpose of God for Jesus, for the Son of God made flesh, and that was confirmed in the New Testament also. Before his ministry, John the Baptist declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. During his ministry, Jesus declared he would be lifted up from the earth to show by what death he was going to die, lifted up on a cross crucified. Caiaphas said prophetically about Jesus that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And in the vision made to John concerning the future, 
Jesus is worshipped in song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, from Genesis to Revelation, it is written of Jesus in the book that he would save a people from their sins by bearing those sins in his own body as an offering. Paul summarized it in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. That was his mission. And he accomplished it by his offering of his body on the cross. Now let me just stop there and make, speak to an objection about that. I have heard it argued that God could never do that to his beloved son. If an earthly father sent his own son to his death on purpose, he would go to prison. So how could a loving God intentionally send his son into the world to be crucified? How can we worship a God who would do something like that? One author called it cosmic child abuse. Is that how we should think of the crucifixion of Christ? Well, remember this. Jesus went to the cross voluntarily. He agreed to do it. In fact, he was eager to do it. Twice in the text, we hear Christ saying to God the Father, I have come to do your will. In fact, we see in chapter 12, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Because through the cross, and only through the cross, could he make perfect those who draw near and restore us to God. And that anticipation brought him much joy. And it's why Jesus said in Luke 12.50 about his coming death, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Because then will come the joy of saving his people from, his sin, from their sins. Far from child abuse, the cross is the supreme act of sacrificial love by the Trinity with the Father initiating, the Son accomplishing, and the Spirit applying that salvation to undeserving lawbreakers like you and like me. We would rob the cross of its honor if we didn't see it that way. And not only that, we would rob ourselves of knowing the depths of God's love for us. Because Paul said in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The confidence that God will graciously give us all things is knowing that He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. That's how we know that He's so committed to our everlasting good. So part two of the drama of salvation is the efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus. It works. <laughs> it makes perfect 
those who draw near to him. It's a sacrifice that does take away sins. Part three is the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. We'll call that section victory. Victory. Let's hear again verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This starts with a review of parts one and two. The priests, year by year, they're offering sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's the inability. Man can't save himself. But Christ offered a single sacrifice for sins, a single offering by which he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's efficacy. Christ's sacrifice really does save. And now part three is added, which is the victory. Christ sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Notice the change in the language here. Instead of priestly language, now it's the language of a conqueror, of a warrior king. The right hand of God is the right hand of the throne of God, which we'll see in Hebrews chapter 12. Enemies being made a footstool speaks of a victor with his foot on the neck of those who sought to overthrow his rule. And he has won a decisive victory. He has left the battlefield. He has sat down on his throne. And now he's waiting for the inevitable surrender of his defeated foes. That's the picture here. This isn't priestly language anymore. This is a different picture of Jesus. This is the one that John saw in the book of Revelation of the Lamb who will conquer those who make war on him, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Obviously, if this describes Christ, it means he didn't stay dead after the sacrifice of his body. It means he lives. It means he reigns from heaven. It means resurrection and ascension. So when we look at Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday in light of Jesus as the King of Kings, here's what happened. The cross was the decisive battle through which God saved sinners like you and me. It was the spiritual D-Day. It was there that the war was won for all the souls that Jesus came into this world to save. Jesus came to do God's will, and he accomplished it. On the cross, he said, it is finished. The penalty for sins is paid. The single offering that perfects for all time those who are being sanctified, it has been made. It is done. The people are saved. And then his resurrection and ascension are his victory lap. As Paul said in Philippians 2, after Jesus' death on the cross, 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's victory. And all that remains is the final surrender, or more accurately, the final judgment of Christ's enemies. Right now, Christ is waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, who are his enemies, and how long is he going to wait? <laughs> well, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26 fills that in for us. Paul says, concerning Jesus, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The end is when Christ returns to wrap up the events of this present world. It says he will destroy every rule and every authority and every power. These are his enemies. These are the powers of evil that are at work in the world. The devil and his angels and all who have given their allegiance to him. They have been defeated and their days are numbered. And it is also true of death itself. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The end of this world is the end of death for all those whom Jesus has saved. Jesus said to Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And why is that? Because the enemies of Jesus are also the enemies of his people. And when he defeated evil and death on the cross, he defeated them for you also. If you're a believer in Christ, you are under the protection of King Jesus who sits on the throne over the world. Yes, both evil and death will continue until he returns. Yes, in this present world, we will suffer and we will die physically. But these are defeated foes that will not have mastery over you. We will suffer, but we will not be lost. We will die, but we will rise again. We long for a world that's renewed, with people who are renewed, rescued by the cross of Christ. And that world has been won for us by Christ and His sacrifice. That world is coming. That world is sure. Jesus only permits evil and death to linger until the gospel has been preached to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then the end will come. Once he has brought in every person that he died to save, then evil and death will be no more. He won't let it go one second longer. It only exists because of his permission right now. As he's gathering in his church from the four ends of the world from all the generations, and once he has his people, he'll say, that's enough. No more evil. No more death. 
No more fallen world. Renewed. Alive. Sinless. Perfected. Forever. Like D-Day, the war for our salvation is won. And the end is certain. And that leads to part four of the drama, which is security. Verses 15 and 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the conclusion to the whole four chapters on the priestly ministry of Jesus. Security is found in these final words. There is no longer any offering for sin. Everything has been done leading up to this certainty. If you're one who benefits from the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, then there is nothing more that Jesus needs to do and nothing more that you need to do to have your lawless deeds forgiven. There is no need for sacrifices or penance or attempts to do better. None of that we don't need to do any of that to be made right with God. Our hope of salvation is not in anything that we do or in anything that's going to happen. It's entirely what, in what Christ has already done. It's what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection that guarantees your salvation from sin and evil and death. That's security. That's the guarantee that we will make it to the end, that we will make it to resurrection and eternal life. Now, lest we misunderstand, we do need to realize that this security is only for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ as their saving sacrifice. Because the passage qualifies who is forgiven their sins and for whom there is no longer any offering for sin. We have two Old Testament quotes here, the same ones we saw in chapter 8. These are promises of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. God promised two things under that covenant. He said, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's what he promises the people who are in covenant with him. Here's what that means. Everyone for whom God says, I will remember your sins no more, is a person in whom God has put his laws on your hearts and your minds. In other words, the forgiven person is the person whose heart has been transformed to love God and to want to do his will, to desire it, to see it as beautiful, and to follow him. The outward obedience is always the evidence of the inner transformation. It is, the, it is the evidence that you have really put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. And that's where it all is and not in yourself. His law is in your heart. You have a new heart. And that's the person to whom he promises, 
I will remember your sins no more. So it's not just anybody. It's the changed person. It's the person who has put their trust in Christ. That's who has security. I hope that describes you. I pray that it describes you, that you've put your trust in him, that you enter into the security of the salvation of Christ. I'll just close with this. The Christian hope is in the present power of past events. Our hope isn't in what will happen or might happen in the future. Our hope is in what has already happened in the past, namely the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That's what makes our salvation secure because the past cannot be changed. To use an illustration, salvation in Christ is more secure than if you took all of your valuables in this world, everything that was precious to you, and you put it in a strong box, and you put that strong box in a safe, and that safe is in a vault, and that vault is in a chamber carved out of stone in a mountain somewhere, you might think, well, that's the best we can do to have security in this world. But you know what? Even that could be taken away somehow, some way. Someone will find a way to get that. But nothing can happen to a salvation that has been secured by past events and is now imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, to quote 1 Peter 1.4. You would have to change the past in order to change your future. And that cannot happen. Jesus has already guaranteed your future by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's security. So the Christian hope is in the present power of past events, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. So may that security be yours today and this week. Celebrate that when you eat and feast today, which I hope is many of your habit. <laughs> Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. This world is not all there is. This world is not the way things end. Not for the believer. Everything that we could possibly hope for and more, more than we could imagine, has been secured by the blood of Christ. May no one leave today, Lord, without having put their trust in you. We want to be together in that world to come. I pray that we will. In Jesus' name, amen.